Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Today we sit down with Lord Nick McPherson, who from 1993 to 1997 was Principal Private Secretary to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He oversaw the transition from Kenneth Clark to Gordon Brown as Chancellor, and was the Permanent Secretary from 2005 to 2016. After 31 years in the department, he worked on 33 budgets and 20 spending reviews. Today we sit down to discuss the changing function of the Treasury over the decades, about its interaction with academic economists, and what would constitute a successful response to the coronavirus crisis. We hope you enjoy. Morning, how are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you. Perfect. How, how's Zoom looking for you? It's, it's looking pretty good. Are we Have you got a picture, or are we just doing it on audio? Uh, just on audio, if that's all right with you. No, that's totally fine. I don't have to, you know, uh, comb my hair and uh, try, <laughs> and, try no, and... none of that. <laughs> so for the sakes of good audio quality, I've kind of put my duvet around my desk. as Very um. Good. Yeah, so, so so trust me when I say no video this morning. I don't think anything would look too flattering from this angle. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Um, well, most often are by these technical expertise. <laughs> oh, you are sharing video now. Just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, feel free if you want, but I mean, we're not recording it. That's fine. I mean, first off, how are you adjusting to life under lockdown? Fairly well. I'm uh, holed up in my flat in Earl's Court. You, you kind of get in, into a rhythm, I think, after a while. I tend to go for a walk very early in the morning. I avoid drinking any alcohol before 6pm. <laughs> and I try to avoid watching television before 7pm. The one thing I can say, I have got you know, a very small garden at the back here and it has had more attention in the last um <laughs> the, the last eight weeks than it's had in the previous 30 years have you been enjoying your unlimited exercise recently <laughs> well you know it's um it's progress i've definitely walked around bits of london which probably within about a mile of where i live which you know i walked down streets which i never walked down before it's very exciting. Went for a very long walk the other day through Kensington Gardens, Hyde Park, down uh, Oxford Street. Came back uh, along St James's Park, and imagine my shock whilst walking through St James's Park, but to see none other than the Prime Minister uh, walking purposefully around the park. Perfect. Well, so so to set the stage of the the questions, you were the UK's UK Treasury's permanent secretary for about a decade. What does yep. the permanent secretary do? Well, the permanent secretary, the clue's in the name. You know, he's at least, or she is part of the permanent civil service, is there to serve all governments and to ensure that the official department, that's the, the, the civil service, is equipped to deliver the democratically elected government's programme of the day. In effect, you're in charge of the department, but it is the Minister of Finance, in the case of Britain, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who provides the strategy, the political priorities, and our job is to implement them. 
So you led the Treasury under three very different economic periods. You've got the years of strong growth before the financial crisis, where we all thought the boom and bust cycle had ended. You have the financial <laughs> crisis itself, where everything goes a bit pear-shaped, and then the kind of ensuing austerity. So in those three very different periods, there was obviously also very different economic policies. How much of that do you think was down to A, public mood, B, the ideology of the government, or C, kind of generic macro conditions? Each of those components informed policy. Inevitably, when circumstances change, governments have to respond. So I think a good example of that is the financial crisis. A more recent example would be the coronavirus crisis. Pre-2008, the Labour government tended to prioritise monetary policy over fiscal policy when um, supporting the economy, fiscal policy was set within a medium-term framework. I think it's fair to say that in response to the emerging recession in 2008, the government became far more prepared to use fiscal policy as a way of supporting demand. And you've seen that again more recently. I think interestingly on macroeconomic policy, I think governments are less ideological than they were. The Treasury I joined in the 1980s had had to respond to the insurgency of monetarists with um, Mrs. Thatcher's victory in 1979. And Keynesianism had almost become a dirty word. I think the experience of the last 10 years is that um, people are um, far more open to Keynesian ideas, whilst also recognising that you know you cannot carry on increasing borrowing indefinitely. There are always consequences. So I would argue that um, economic policy practised by Brown, Darling, Osborne, and now Rishi Sunak um, is, is pretty pragmatic. So you talk there about how challenges do change from the oncoming regime. And you said at an event for the Institute of Government that in 1979, the Treasury didn't get the policy agenda of the incoming Thatcher government. And then in 1997, it didn't get a change in style of working under the Brown regime. I was wondering if you could just kind of expand on what you meant there. I wasn't at the Treasury in 1979, but I did quite a lot of uh, research uh, around about the time of the 2010 election, uh, when it looked like there could be a change of government, to try and understand how the civil service can best respond to a new government. My understanding from talking to people who were young, relatively young officials in 79 was that the Treasury High Command, the senior civil servants, simply didn't understand what the Thatcher government's agenda was in practice. So they they had become so steeped in a in a view of the world and a slightly defeatist view, for example, on controlling public spending, that they probably weren't prepared for the extent of cuts um, the Thatcher government wanted to implement or, or the pure monetarist new orthodoxy. I think it's really important for civil servants to really work at understanding where democratically elected uh, ministers are, are coming from. You know, you have to accept their strategic direction and respond to that. Turning to 97, um, I think the problem was, was different. 
The Treasury put a huge amount of effort into preparing for a new Labour government. If I look back on it, I think we probably were overly inclined to believe every last word written in the Labour Party's manifesto. But what we didn't understand was that, or at least we weren't prepared for, was that you had a Prime Minister and Chancellor in um, Teddy Blair and Gordon Brown who had never been a minister before, had developed really quite sophisticated political machines while in opposition with very high-class special advisors of, um, for example, in the case of the Treasury, um, Ed Balls and Ed Miliband. And I think we were overly inclined to think that you know, after a passage of time, ways of working would be the same as they had always been. To give an example, I was um, the principal private secretary to um, Ken Clark on the 30th of April, 1997. The next day, my job was to be the principal private secretary to Gordon Brown. But Ken Clark had been a minister for 18 years. He had reduced the art of government to... Um, I was going to say reduced it to fine art, whereas Gordon Brown's style of working was completely different, right down to, I remember the first day I went into the office, I thought I'd done really well to get in by 8am, and it turned that Gordon Brown had been there for three hours already. So it's, it's not enough as a civil servant to understand policy preferences. You've also got to understand styles of working. And in the end, you know, you, there are certain fundamentals, like you expect ministers to observe the rule of law. But beyond that, it's kind of down to them to um, determine how they want to work. And it's the job of the government department to um, adapt. So stepping back in a second, instead of focusing on the Treasury, to look at it as in the context of one of the government departments. An example of the relationship between number 10 and number 11, probably at its most unhealthy, was likely under Ted Heath in the 1970s, where the head of his home civil service was referred to colloquially as a deputy PM. um, And the actual chancellor of the Exchequer was seen as quite weak. I mean, first, would you agree with that characterization as an unhealthy relationship? Um, And then if so, how does this unhealthy relationship between number 10 and number 11 kind of manifest into tangible differences in the state of the country? The first point I'd make is it's a very important relationship. In In the modern era, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is the second most important minister in government after the Prime Minister. That wasn't the case probably before the Second World War, probably in those days the Foreign Secretary was was more important, but it's a reflection of Britain's challenges over the last 50 years that the economy tends to be at the heart of them. I wasn't at the Treasury in the in the Heath era. I can vaguely remember it growing up. And I think your characterization is is broadly right. You do want both the Prime Minister and Chancellor to be pretty big figures in their own right. I think for the benefit of the economy, you do want a Chancellor who is prepared to stand up to the Prime Minister when he or she has to. There is always going to be tension because it's the job of the Prime Minister to lead the government. It's the job of the Prime Minister to try and ensure that his or her party is re-elected at the next election. The Chancellor is clearly part of the team, who also, I dare say, wants to get the government re-elected. But their job occasionally, I mean, their job is also to be responsible for the economy. And sometimes they have to just say to the Prime Minister, just hang on a second, 
we just simply can't do that or we can't afford it or just to say no. And if I look back on some of the best relationships, I think it's where you've got a confident chancellor with a clear sense of direction whom the prime minister respects. So I would say the the early period of Nigel Lawson and Margaret Thatcher was a very constructive period. I think the Ken Clark-John Major relationship was a very positive one. I'm quite sure Ken managed to annoy John quite considerably from time to time. Nevertheless, there was mutual respect there. The Brown-Blair relationship, which is often cast in a bad light, I think for, for large periods of that government was a was a really constructive one based on a degree of tension. Latterly, the Cameron-Osborne relationship is a very strong one. Osborne had a lot of influence on the course of the government. I know austerity is now a dirty word and the, the, the Cameron-Osborne regime is, uh, is regarded as a failure, but in its day, it was quite effective and maybe had they won the referendum in 2016, subsequent history might have been a little different. How do you think a good chancellor and a good prime minister working together, how do you think that manifests in like tangible benefits for the country? The tangible benefits, I think, reside in a clear, coherent and affordable strategy. Where I begin to worry in a relationship is when uh, a prime minister disregards the advice of his or her chancellor. That carries risks for the economy. Equally, where you know a chancellor either is um, is conspiring to replace the prime minister, potentially can cause problems too. What what you hope is that their proximity. Bear in mind these guys live literally next door to each other, both in terms of their domestic life. I mean, nowadays actually the prime minister lives in number eleven in the flat in number eleven Downing Street because it's bigger. Um, it wasn't the case in the old days where they use that proximity to ensure there is serious alignment across government, I think that can um, result in um, greater efficiency, um, greater coherence to policy. Would you say that a a fair characterisation of the role of the Treasury would be to take away the punch when the party gets going, in that it should have this moderating role? I think the Treasury does play a moderating role. Um, sometimes people would argue that um, it plays too great a moderating role. On other occasions, when it's in a weaker position, it probably doesn't um, have enough of an impact. But the Treasury is there ultimately to um, represent the, the taxpayer to ensure that they get decent value for money. But more generally, I think of any government department, it is the champion of consumer interests over producer interests. Insofar as any government is capable of looking uh, beyond uh, the next general election, I'd like to think that the Treasury is perhaps better placed to take a longer view, um, not least because it can sort of collate the medium to long term pressures which are building up in the economy. So one of the themes that we've touched on a lot with this series is the value of understanding history versus just hardcore maths. So how valuable do you think it is for ministers to be aware of history and the type of precedent we've talked about um, and policymakers, like vis-a-vis some really cool differential equations? 
I think there's a time and a place for really cool differential equations. Sadly, I didn't go to the LSE, but I did do an MSc at uh, University College up the road. History, I think, is incredibly relevant. And the longer I worked at the Treasury, the more important I thought history was. Not because history repeats itself. Of course, it doesn't. But there are huge similarities in the features of long trade cycles. You know, the long upswing, the point towards the top of the upswing when indicators are beginning to flash red, the tendency for collective self-delusion. The words, this time, is different. Um, I always say, when you hear the words, this time, it's different, you should start getting very worried. I think there are also quite important features of Britain as a country. All countries have have their own histories. You know, I think it's impossible to understand the German obsession with macro stability and sound money without understanding the great inflations which followed the two world wars. In the case of Britain, it's fair to say that um, the British people over a long period have been addicted to consumption over investment. And so the politicians they elect tend to be addicted to consumption. And although we all say housing booms are terrible, I've always detected a degree of collusion between homeowners and the politicians they elect in ensuring that house prices rise. And equally, when it comes to growth policy, you can go back 100 years and find um, learned people writing reports saying that Britain's skills base isn't good enough, uh, bewailing the fact that the greatest centre of capital in the world, in the city of London, seems completely incapable of intermediating that capital to startups. So there's been a persistent equity gap in terms of financing small businesses. I also think in the, in the case of the Treasury, you can't really understand the Treasury without understanding Gladstone's uh, reforms in the 19th century, which in effect create the framework we have for public expenditure planning and control. So I don't think one should become obsessed with history. Um, you know, the differential equations matter. I think the developments in economic theory matter. But I think economic history is far more important than um, universities now give it credit. And it is striking that, you know, economic history departments generally are much smaller than they were 50 years ago. Personally, I think that's a pity. Yeah, it's interesting because I took, um, I studied to make economic history in my first year, and that was my optional module, whereas all of the hardcore differential equations is the stuff that's considered mandatory. It's really interesting that. You read the general theory uh, by John Maynard Keynes, and there, there are equations in it, but you kind of uh, wonder when you read uh, an article in the Economic Journal or in Economica or whatever the publications are called, where it is just equation after equation. And then, you know, there's a conclusion when the, the author in sort of two lines says this may be relevant for policymakers in this respect, but it's literally only in, you know, a short paragraph. I really value the fact that there are um, economic thinkers at the cutting edge of, uh, you know, creative thinking when it comes to economics. I just don't think you can 
look at economics in isolation. I'm not going to get into the issue of whether economics is a science. I think to, to be a good economist, you've got to also understand human nature and a bit of history and also, you know, institutions. You know, why do we have housing booms in Britain? Well, because housing is taxed far less than other assets. Understanding some of those institutional issues and bringing a bit of economic thinking to the party is, is, is really important. So one thing that we've been, again, we've been asking everyone is a quote, 2006, so Greg Mankiw, who was a Harvard professor and at the time chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under George Bush, he said, quote, the sad truth is that the macroeconomic research of the past three decades has had only a minor impact on the practical analysis of monetary and fiscal policy. So would you agree? And then if so, why? Why is it that, you know, we have the cutting edge in the UK and America, but it's seeming to filter very little into the actual day-to-day runnings of things? I think part of the reason someone might have said that in, in 2006 was that we were at that point, something like 14 years into a huge global upswing, which had been peppered by the on odd crisis, you know, um, long-term capital in the States, the Asian, Asian crisis of late 90s, dot-com boom. But, but generally, the economy had grown year after year. And I can remember talking to, I won't, I won't name names, but someone quite senior in, in, in government who, who said, well, you know, macro, macroeconomic policy is sorted. There was this belief that somehow we'd found the holy grail and that all you needed was an inflation target and a reasonably um, sensible fiscal framework and you could create macroeconomic stability. I mean, I'm not sure whether Gordon Brown actually ever said that, said that he had abolished boom and bust. I don't think he'd intended to say that. His, his aim certainly was to abolish boom and bust. What we all fail to recognise as a result was a massive build-up of financial risk in the system. You know, look, there are lots of people who claim that they saw the financial crisis coming, but if you look at the speeches of uh, Alan Greenspan, central bankers in Europe, politicians, even treasury officials, we didn't realise how much risk was building up. And one, I mean, look, I wouldn't wish the 2008 financial crisis on anybody, but the one thing which it has done is to provide a massive scope for reappraising uh, macroeconomic policy, both in theory and practice. And um, it provides huge scope for PhDs ever on into the future. And the, the latest coronavirus crisis will, will provide even more opportunities for analysis, not least because uh, Western governments are embarking on borrowing programs um, totally without precedent. At the same time, we've had really interesting developments on the trade front with uh, a move to greater protectionism in the United States, uh, Britain leaving the European Union, which you can either argue is an expression of protectionism, or if you're a bit more optimistic, is a, is a final sort of victory of Gladstonian um, free trade policy, who knows. But these are these are good times to be a macro economist. It's no longer boring. It's no longer sorted. And we've seen huge policy developments, the whole sort of development of macro prudential 
policy. The, the point I'd make there, I think, is that um, is that there is scope for development and economic thinking. It's a great time to be an economist. Well, I'm reassured to hear I'm not wasting my nine grand a year then. <laughs> to kind of to move more on to coronavirus. Um, so after the after the Second World War, you know, it, it was all great. We had the beverage reports. Um, and we founded the NHS. Whereas conversely, after 2008, we had a decade of austerity leading into Brexit, which might be a good thing, depending who you ask. Um, which way do you think it's going to go in the post-coronavirus world? It's a really good question. Um, I've got absolutely no idea. I don't think anybody's got an idea, not least because I don't detect a latter-day beverage uh, beavering away at the heart of Whitehall or in the the LSE. The, the extraordinary thing about the Second World War was precisely because it followed the First World War in pretty short order, there was genuine determination within government, which you've got to remember was a coalition and included um, some quite serious socialists within it, to ensure that um, there, there was a new Jerusalem which could be focused on whilst the war continued and people could begin to populate what a modern welfare state would look like. And that's what Beveridge did, just as Keynes also was creating a new framework for macroeconomic policy, not just in in Britain, but um, in creating the multilateral institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. Now, this, this virus is going to be around for a while. There is an opportunity, people want to take it, to begin to develop a view of how uh, the state should operate in the early part of the 21st um, century. I mean, there are certain fixed points. We know at the end of this, um, we're going to have a lot more debt. We know that there will be demands for greater NHS capacity. I mean, always following a, a, a crisis like this, people want to ensure that next time it's different. So just as following the financial crisis, there was a demand that banks should be better capitalised so that if there was another crisis, they would not be an appalling drain on public money. And actually, so far, the banking system has stood up pretty well in this crisis. So expect a lot more NHS capacity, just as in the old days, we used to have lots of um, redundant fire engines called green goddesses, which which were created because of the very real threat of nuclear war in the in the fifties and sixties. I don't think we have green goddesses anymore, which is why the last firefighter strike was a bit more problematic. The, the point is, you will have a bigger NHS. I think also people will say we've got to have a better care home, uh, social care system for the elderly. I think that has failed to operate in this crisis. So I think we've got to realise there's going to be a lot more public spending. There will be a bigger state as a result of this crisis. That was going to happen anyway. Um, demographic pressures we know were due to build up in this decade and further in the 2030s. And we've also seen that the Conservative Party is no longer controlled by people who regard you know, uh, constraining the size of the state as a priority. It's very striking that Mr. Johnson has taken a few very, he's taken remarkably few tough decisions on public spending and shows no great inclination to take those decisions in, in the future. Indeed, he's um, rejected the whole concept of austerity. 
So I think one of the interesting questions for the future is if we're going to have a bigger state, um, how are we going to organize it? And how are we going to pay for it? Because look, you, you, quite rightly, the government's borrowing in the, in the short run, but, but you can't carry on increasing borrowing indefinitely if you run deficits of 15% of national income. You can do that for a year or two, but if, you, if, if that's your plan for the next 10 years, I'm afraid the only way in the end you're going to finance it is through inflation. So I think there is scope for uh, another look about what a modern welfare state should look like. The British people have clearly rejected austerity. So the centre of political gravity has, has moved leftwards, even as we have a right-wing government. The big uncertainty in all of this is the impact of Brexit. I mean, the advocates of Brexit think there's going to be a brave new world. I'm a bit more cautious about that. I think um, looking at uh, what the government's saying, the risk is that we are erecting quite big new trade barriers with our main trading partner, um, the European Union. And this this could also constrain growth in the economy. I should sort of finish this rambling soliloquy by saying, obviously, um, as a former Treasury official, I'm, I'm interested in the public finances, but the best way of sorting out the public finances is generating growth in the economy and growth in productivity. Even before the COVID crisis, the government was really struggling on this front. Um, productivity growth, I think it was only per hour, was about 0.3% a year for the 11 years from 2008 to 2019. Solving that growth problem is really the key to solving um, many of the issues around um, uh, paying for um, the welfare state. It may be that somehow out of the COVID crisis comes some new growth model, but I don't see any great sign of it. To revive growth, you really have got to solve the age-old problems which Britain has um, struggled with. You need more investment, perhaps less consumption. You need a really good skill system as well as a really good university system. I think our further education framework is pretty poor compared to certainly Germany. You also have to address things like um, housing, uh, a planning system, supporting um, innovation, all these things. Now, every government always says it's going to address all these things. I've had to witness many a new growth strategy. In fact, normally governments announce a new growth strategy every two years. Actually, what the contents have never changed very much, but a lot of this is about implementation and having a government which is really focused on it. The problem is that a lot of these issues are actually quite boring. Um, they don't involve announcements, they just involve a lot of hard work. Very few prime ministers I've worked with have the attention span really to make a difference to the economy over a period of time. So if solving the growth problem is key, and, and through doing that, it needs to be through a focus of investment and skills. Let's say tomorrow, you know, you bump into Boris Johnson in the park, he appoints you Chancellor of the Exchequer, you've got a good 60-seat um, majority lead. What, what do you do to deal with the investment and skills problem, especially in the context of where people are, unre- uh, people are reluctant to go outside and buy things for a fear of catching a deadly virus? Look, I don't think you can do anything until this virus is more 
under control and people are behaving perfectly rationally in being reluctant to go out because uh, the one thing people want to do generally is to avoid dying. It's the state's job to help them. So I don't think, look, this is not a time to announce a new initiative on skills. Um, it'll just get lost in the noise of the crisis. But what, what you do need is a really clear plan when, um, say, in a year's time, we've got a vaccine and people really do actually want to get out and work and improve themselves. Having a really coherent investment strategy which is focused on economic return rather than prestige projects which sound really exciting but you know you're not going to have to pay for for another 10 years is really important. You know, there's the old cliche about shovel-ready schemes but if ever there was a time when the Treasury, the government, the Prime Minister should be focusing on what can be done, what will make the biggest difference, what will really help um, reduce bottlenecks in the economy is now. I would have a task force on that. If I was Prime Minister, I'd be wanting to have a meeting on that once a week to ensure that when the economy really opens up, there is a coherent and deliverable plan. Utterly essential. And that, as I say, that's not about announcing HS2 because HS2 is going to make no difference to the economy for 20 years. I mean, for all I know, HS2 could be part of the solution. I rather doubt it, but let's say it is. But is this about the next five years? And my personal view is that housing needs to be part of that investment plan because there is a chronic shortage of housing. Um, it's invariably built in the wrong places. And we just need to challenge our prejudices on that front. The other thing I would be really prioritising is the skills issue, which is not this is not about universities. I think the top sort of two deciles of each generation probably get as good an education as, as anywhere in the developed world. I'm more concerned with, say, the 35th percentile down to the 90th percentile of those going through the education system. Some of that may be about universities, but a lot of it is going to be around further education and also employers getting more involved and taking more responsibility for the development of their people. Um, we know in the modern world that jobs are changing more quickly than in the past, so there needs to be a lifelong element to this. Again, look, I know you probably got to dress this up in some exciting announcements, but a lot of this is about prioritisation um, because most of the participants in modern politics have never been near a FE college. They are starved of resources in a way where universities are not. This actually requires reallocating resources to further education and to skills. And it requires a far better transmission mechanism because you can throw money at these problems, but actually you really need to be focused on results. You need greater transparency about outcomes, people who go through colleges. This has to be set in a long-term context. In an ideal world, and you mentioned uh, beverage, it, it, it would be a cross-party policy because 
One of the problems with government in this country is, apart from the National Health Service, people have very, very weak attachments to our institutions. So every government come in, comes in and tends to um, rearrange the deck chairs, get people to all reapply for their jobs, which is incredibly inefficient in terms of focus on delivery. Those are the things I'd be focusing on. So finally on this then, if the state is currently paying 20% of people's wages, just keeping the economy ticking over, and then we need this bold recovery plan, and then we need this long-run skills improvements, how the hell are we ever going to pay all this back? I mean, you've spoken in favour of a social insurance tax. Why that, and why that over other options? We, we are going to need more taxes. I'm, I'm in no doubt about that. And if, if we don't, uh, we won't have the resources to, to deal with these issues we've been discussing. I have no great attachment to particular taxes. The one thing I do know, though, is fantasizing that we're somehow going to get it off footloose multinationals and digital companies. You can just forget that. Even if you manage to make some digital sales tax work, it's going to bring in at best a few hundred million. And what we need is probably 30 billion, if not more, a year. And so if you're going to raise those levels of money, it has to be through the main taxes which people pay. Those are basically income tax, national insurance, and value-added tax. I'm not really that bothered which one. The reason um, I'm attracted to something which is called social insurance or national insurance or a solidarity charge is... Would you just explain what that is, sorry? What I'm trying to articulate is I think people are more inclined to pay taxes if you can associate the tax with, with something they value. We know we've got to spend more on the NHS. We know we've got to pay more for social care. So social insurance or social solidarity is, I think, a good place to start. I know some of that is presentational and you could argue is, is meaningless, but actually, I'm reminded of Gordon Brown in 2001, who realised that the NHS was going to need more money in the medium term, created a bit of a debate about the National Health Service's long-term needs, and on the back of that, raised the rate of national insurance, which both employees and employers pay, by 1%, bringing in something like £12 billion which in those days was a reasonable sum of money. That is the only discretionary tax increase I can remember of any magnitude. All other tax increases were always brought in at times of national catastrophe and desperation. So I think we do need a debate about the NHS and social care, and then we need a tax to pay for it. Now, the reason why I'm arguing for a sort of social insurance or social solidarity charge is National insurance as a tax has a number of defects. It's only paid by people of working age. We now have a lot of well-off elderly people. National insurance is only paid on earnings, but we have a lot of people in society who live off dividends and rents. And what I would like to see is a tax on all sorts of income, but unlike income tax, doesn't have tax reliefs to set against it, because I'm a great believer that in the effective taxation requires as broad a base as possible to enable you to have the minimal minimum increase in rates to raise 
a given sum. And okay. so that's why I've been advocating this idea of a social insurance charge. Perfect. So we've got a solid, looks like we've got a solid roadmap ahead of us. So then with the final two questions to finish off on. So, so first, there are plenty of young economists who listen to this, and I'm sure you can imagine I've got a lot of spare time on their hands about now. So you lectured in economic history and the treasury at King's College London. What did you class as the essential reading from economic history? What periods do you think budding economists, budding civil servants could learn the most from? And uh, which books stand out to teach it best? Well, I think, um, I think post-war economic history is the, is the place to start. I think the history even of the last 30-odd years are really relevant because going back to our early, earlier discussion, there have been definite swings of the pendulum and I think it's fair to say that we are now at a potential crossroads. Sadly, there is no um, textbook, in a sense, which answers... Um, which in one place gives you all the answers. I think a good place to start, if you just want to focus on Britain, um, is a a book on the chancellors by a guy called Edmund Dell. Um, I think he wrote it around about the early 1990s. That is a jolly good read. I'd always recommend um, Nigel Lawson's um, book, the View from Number 11, which he published in around about 1990. I mean, not because you want to understand every detail of what Nigel Lawson did. It's incredibly well written, and it gives you a very good overview of the role of uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, Personally, I'm biased here. My favourite one has to be Alistair Darling's, again, The View. I was, about, I was very good. I was about to, um, I was about to recommend that one. Um, it's, it's a jolly good read because, you know, it's, it, it's well written and it does give you a bit of an insight into the sort of conflicting pressures mm. under which a Chancellor Exchequer works. So, so that's a good one. I think... If, if you're interested in Europe, um, there's a book by Philip Stevens called Politics and the Pound, which is um, is worth a read. But yeah, the Alistair book is not so recent now, actually. It might, he must have written it a good, um, good eight years ago. But of course, to me, it seems like only yesterday. Um, so finally, just to close off, as ever, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that in the end, Nothing is ever as bad as you fear, or for that matter, as good as you hope. And economies generally grow. There is an awful lot of creativity in the human race. And in every country, there are people with ideas, with energy, who want to do things. I'm also a great believer in humanity, generally wants to do the right thing. Okay, there are a lot of things which will result in people doing the wrong thing, but, but there is that interest in doing the right thing. And actually, I would say universities and economic departments are very much part of that. And at the risk of sounding like some 19th century liberal, which to a degree I am, I still believe in progress. I think we can build a better society. I think that the way we live now is infinitely better than when I was growing up in the um, late 60s and early 70s. Tolerance of society, whether it's about things like abortion, sexuality, divorce, um, is just so much more advanced than it was 50 years ago. And I think we can progress 
further. And I also think we can um, become better off whilst also not destroying the planet um, because of the ingenuity of the human race. So I'm, I'm still an optimist. Lord Ning McPherson, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time.